Last month, right before Christmas, the boys and I went up to South Lake Tahoe. My five sons and I, a friend of theirs, John, his parents have a cabin in South Lake Tahoe, and so he invited us to head up there for a few days in the winter. It had been a long time since I'd been up to Lake Tahoe in the, in the winter. It's beautiful. It was a very eventful trip. It took us seven and a half hours to get there. It was right at the end. There was this big snowstorm right before Christmas, and the storm was, you know, still going on, kind of coming to an end. And so we had to go up 80 and then go to North Shore and then go around the east side of Lake Tahoe, seven and a half hours in a car. It was, it was wild. Then we got there, and we learned from locals that it had been 20 years since they'd seen that much snow there in December. So sort of good, sort of not good. We get out of the car, and the snow is, you know, up to our chest between us and the, and the front door. And so it's like 3 in the morning, uh, so we're out there just trying to shovel snow, which is not something that I've done before, and just trying to get a pathway into the house. So we finally get a path to the front door so that we can get in the house and we can, you know, we can go to sleep. Uh, pull the car over to the side. A few hours later, just a few hours later, couldn't really sleep, woke up and thought, uh, well, I'm going to go get some coffee. You know, that was a rough trip, but I'm going to go get some coffee. And I go outside and uh, my car is not there. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe it's just snowed and it's, is that possible? I can't see it. It's covered in snow. No, it's, I go out and where my car was, it's just not there. Okay, so I call, so it turns out you're not supposed to, so if you don't know this, now you do, you're not supposed to park your car on the side of the road when it's snowing in South Lake Tahoe. If you do, they tow it. So I called the police station, they said, yeah, you, you're going to have to come down here, you, you got you to gotta sign some things and give us some money and we'll give you your car back. Okay, well I'll just hop in my car and come down there, right? <laughs> So I get, I get on, uh, I'd never done Uber, so I download the Uber app, and I'm figuring that out. Same time, I'm calling taxi companies in South Lake Tahoe. Well, it's snowing really bad. It's 15 degrees outside, and the roads are icy, and so no one is driving, including Uber drivers and including these taxi services. So I, I, I figure out where the police station is. It's a couple miles away, so I'm going to walk. So I'm going to walk to the police station. So I, I take this walk, and I get there, and then they, they give me the papers and explain the situation. I've got to sign it, and then I give them some money. Okay, where's my car? It's at, it's at our tow yard. Oh, okay, well, surely that's right next to the police station. You know, where is your, well, where's the tow yard? And he pulls out this map, and it's two blocks from the cabin. So, all right, another walk. It ended up being a great, I mean, really, it, was, it really was a great trip. And it's interesting because one of the best things about that trip was, was that walk. I mean, it was, I never would have, you know, gotten out of bed 15 degrees and, and gone out and, and walked for four miles or, or whatever it was. But I'm so glad that 
I'm glad I had to do that. Uh, it, it was a difficult walk at times, it was a little bit dangerous at times, but I was able to just slow down and think while I was walking. I was able to pray. It was a sweet time. And it was, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. I'd never seen anything like it. You can and you should think of your Christian life as a walk. One of the questions that we've got on this sheet of paper that we will sometimes ask a, a member candidate here at Veritas in an interview is we'll, we'll ask them to describe your daily walk with God. And the reason that we use that word in that question or that, that you use it or have heard it if you've been a Christian for a while, the reason we use that is that it's, a, it's a biblical term. It's a biblical term that is used to describe our daily life with God. It's actually the Apostle Paul. It was his preferred metaphor for describing the Christian life. It shows up in almost every single one of his letters. And this letter that we've been studying, Ephesians, is where he uses it the most. He uses that term, walk, seven different times. Back in chapter 2, verse 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Chapter 2, verse 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then in verse 17 of chapter 4, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And now, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 21, he uses the word three more times to get into our heads what it means and what it looks like to be a Christian on earth. So if you're taking notes, here are the three ways Paul calls us as Christians to walk, and then we'll examine each of them. Number one, in verses one through six, we are to walk in love. Secondly, in verses 7 through 14, we are to walk in light. And then third, in verses 15 through 21, we are to walk in wisdom. Let's take these one at a time, but first, let's bow our heads and pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us your word, for revealing yourself to us so that we could know you. And we ask, God, that you'd help us now to understand things that are only spiritually discerned. So by your Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes so that we would know you more 
and love you more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, if you haven't already. If you'd like to use one of those Bibles in the seat back in front of you, as David said, today's text is on page 919, so you could flip there. For your good and for the glory of God, this then is how you should walk. That's what Paul is going to teach us. This is how we walk. This is how we live as Christians. He will say three things. So first, let's look at verses 1 through 6, where we are called to walk in love. And let's begin in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Therefore, that is because of what Paul has said, we are, we are God's beloved. We have been forgiven by God, chapter 4, verse 32. And now we are his child. We have been adopted into God's family, and so we should imitate Him. We, as beloved children, should imitate God because He is our Heavenly Father. All children, in some way or another, imitate their parents. There are things that I have grown up to do and say that I can remember my dad doing and saying. Some of you have had that same experience. And some of it was intentional. There were things that my dad said that I want to say, and there were things that my dad did that I want to do. And other times, I'm just saying, it's unintentional. I'm just saying something, and I'm remembering that's exactly what my dad said, or I'm doing something that's exactly what my dad did, because we just naturally, right, we imitate our parents. Well, as Christians, we have the best parent. So regardless of what your earthly parents were like and whether or not there was redeemable things in them to emulate, regardless, if you're a Christian, you have the best parent. You have the best parent, our heavenly father, and we should imitate him, is what Paul is saying. We should imitate him. And there is nothing, when it comes to imitating God, there is, there is nothing about God that is more clearly on display and is more demanding of our imitation than his love, than his great love. So Paul says in verse 2, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We should walk in love because God, through Jesus, has loved us. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. 
Romans 5.8 says God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or 1 John 3.1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. So love, walk in love as Christ has loved us. Let's make sure, though, that, that we understand that we're on the same page regarding love. I've studied and prayed and thought, and this is the definition that I've come up with, that I've shared with you many times over the years of what love is. Love is the inevitably costly effort to do what is best for the beloved. That's what love is. Love is that it is to do for the person you love what you believe is for their good, is for their best. And that is inevitably going to be a costly thing for you to do, sometimes harder or more difficult than others. God has demonstrated his love for us in doing just that. God the Son, Jesus Christ, out of love for us, what did Paul say? Gave himself up for us. He was an offering. He offered himself for us. He was a sacrifice to God for us. Gave himself up. Sacrifice. Offering. To walk in love is to give ourselves up. To walk in love is to give ourselves up for those we love. It is to love others by offering and even sacrificing ourselves, which means, think of that word sacrifice, it means it is often a costly effort to do what is best for those we love. And I think this is an uncommon thing. This, this real love, it's uncommon. Walking in love is it's not what we're surrounded by. Walking in love is not what comes natural. What comes natural is what Paul brings up next. In contrast to love is lust. Love is selfless. Love is others-centered, and it looks to give. Lust is selfish. Lust is self-centered, and it looks to get. Love says, I'm here for you. Lust says, you're here for me. Very different. So lust is not the same thing as love. Love is described in verses 
1 and 2. And now it's contrasted with lust, this selfish indulgence in verses 3 and 4, verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. The Greek words behind sexual immorality and all impurity that are there are two words that together sort of catch all and include all sexual activity that is outside of marriage between one man and one woman. Marriage within marriage is the only place where this intimacy belongs. There, it fulfills its intended purpose. You understand, sex has been invented by and designed by God to profoundly express affection and devotion to one beloved. Sexual immorality, on the other hand, does not look to express affection and devotion to one person that you are in covenant with. It looks to get what you want, that is to covet, which is why he uses that word along with those other words. It is to look to get what you want out of someone else. Else, And that is the opposite of walking in love. And it was a big problem in Paul's day. And it's a big problem in our day. He goes on in verse 4, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead... Let there be thanksgiving. So not only should we not engage in this kind of wanting and taking, we shouldn't even talk about it, let alone joke about it. Rather, but instead, Paul says, let there be thanksgiving. Which if you think about it, the opposite of covetousness is thanksgiving. The opposite of being consumed with what you want but don't have, which leads to lust, is thanking God for what you have, which leads to love. Now, for some of us, that's enough here. This argument from Paul, that's enough. Understanding the difference between love and lust, that that was helpful for you if you hadn't been helped already. And you're motivated, you're encouraged, you're seeing things that you might want to change. It, it, it's enough to motivate you to walk in love. But others of us, we may need a stronger reason. And that's what Paul gives in verse 5 and 6. 4. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Here's what Paul is saying. Those who covet and take 
rather than those who are content and give. They have nothing ultimately to look forward to. This life is as good as it will ever get. So verse 6, he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. Words like, God wants you to be happy, so do whatever you want to do. Empty words. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, that is the sexual immorality and the covetousness, he's just brought up in verse 5, because of these things, mark this, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So Christians, Paul is saying, we must not walk in lust, looking to take what we want from others. We must walk in love. Give yourself up in doing what is best for your beloved. Love your family. Love your church. Love your Friends, love your spouse, love your kids in this way. Walk in love. A second, let's look at verses 7 through 14, where Paul will call us to walk in light. Beginning in verse 7, Therefore, do not become partners with them, that is, the sons of disobedience, Don't be partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. This is something different that Paul says here. If you look closely, in other places, and you've probably heard it, he and Other writers in the New Testament, they describe Christians as being in light. For example, 1 Peter 2, 9, God has called you out of darkness and into light, into his marvelous light. But this is different. I mean, if you put texts like that and you put this together then what it's saying is, as F.F. Bruce puts it, our lives and not just our environment has been changed from darkness to light. Because Paul doesn't say we were in darkness and now we are in light. He says we were darkness and now we are light. Our environment has certainly changed as Christians. We have been brought into light, but also our very lives have been transformed so that we actually are light, is what Paul is saying. And therefore, we must live in accordance with who we are, which is always what the New Testament is calling us to do. Here is who you are, now live in accordance with who you are. We are light, so we must walk as children of light. Well, let's think about what that means. There there are a lot of things, when I think of this light metaphor, there's a lot of things that 
this could mean. But what does Paul have in mind here? We don't just hear Paul say that we are light and then, you know, close our Bible and start thinking about what that means. Because he actually tells us. And I'm seeing three things. See if you see the same things. I'm seeing three things. The first, what it means to walk in light. The first is in verses 9 and 10. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Darkness is a symbol for ignorance. It's a symbol for evil. Light is a symbol for truth and righteousness. And because we are light, Paul says, we must try and discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Because we are children of light, we are able to see clearly and we are able to discern what in this world is pleasing to God and what is not. What in our lives is pleasing to God and what is not. We've been enabled to see clearly because we are light. Once we've discerned, I think that's the first thing, what the fruits of the light are, what is pleasing to God, then we must, verse 11, here's the second thing, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. That literally says, no, take part, don't take part. And that word for take part is a word that means bond. It means fellowship. It means sharing. It means partnership. Don't have fellowship with this. Don't partner yourself with what is not pleasing to God. Don't join yourself. Don't bond yourself to what is not pleasing to God. Take no part. And those things you've discerned are not pleasing to the Lord. They are the unfruitful works of darkness. But instead, and here's the third thing, expose them. Verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says... Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. To walk as children of the light is to discern what is pleasing to God, to take no part in what is not, and then to expose the unfruitful works of darkness. Or maybe this will be more helpful for you to remember. To walk as children of light will mean discernment, detachment, and disclosure. It'll mean discernment. 
To walk as children of light is to discern what is pleasing to God like love and what is not pleasing to God like lust. To walk as children of light will sometimes mean detachment. It will mean that we have to detach ourselves, sever ourselves, disconnect ourselves from the ways of this world. Not, you know, don't hear something I'm not saying, like disconnect ourselves from the world, which is impossible and we shouldn't do. Jesus prayed for us as we would be in the world, that we would honor and glorify God in this life. We can't cut ourselves off from the world, but we should discern how to detach ourselves from the ways of the world. We live differently. We do things differently. We think differently. And sometimes walking as children of the light will mean disclosure. That is to reveal. The word Paul uses is expose. At times when you've discerned what is pleasing to God and what is not, and you've worked to detach yourself from the ways of the world, there also comes a point where Christians just have to call something what it is. And to speak the truth. The ESV study Bible, I thought it was helpful when it it, it, it talks about this word expose, this Greek word, which means either to reprove or to convince through argument and discussion, at the same time taking great care not to gossip or slander others. You see, because Paul says in verse 12, right, there's a difference between speaking about these things in the dark. So don't speak that way, but then there's a right way to speak publicly about these things that are displeasing God when we expose them in the light. Let me just give you a few examples of what this might look like. I suspect that this might be difficult for some of us to, to grasp. I think this could happen in your own heart. This exposure could happen in your own heart when you, when you openly and frankly and specifically confess sin. It may happen in a relationship when you sit down with a friend and you say, there's some things that I've seen, that I've noticed about you, about your life, and I'm really concerned, and you bring it into the light. It may happen in a church. It may happen in a church when a member is carefully and lovingly, but publicly, admonished before the congregation. And something is exposed. It may happen in a society when Christians speak up and call something what it is. A couple men came to mind. One was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived in Nazi Germany, came to America, then went back to Germany, knowing what it would likely cost him, spoke out against Hitler himself, 
And he said the call of Christians was not simply to bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice, but we are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. I went back to Germany and called Hitler out and was killed for it two weeks before the war ended. I thought of William Wilberforce, another Christian man who spoke out in early 19th century England and called slavery what it was. I think of Americans today who call abortion what it is. So these are different ways that we might walk as children of light. We've been enabled to discern what is pleasing to God and what is not pleasing to God. We detach ourselves from the ways of this world, and at times we need to expose these unfruitful works of darkness. Don't forget love, which Paul has already established. We speak the truth in love, which he's explicitly said. But we must be willing to speak the truth. So not only are we called to walk in love, we are also called to walk in light. We are called to give ourselves up for those we love. And we are called to discern what is pleasing to God and expose what is not. And then finally, number three. Let's look at verses 15 through 21. Numbers 1 and 2 will require number three. We must walk in wisdom. Verse 15. Look carefully then. So this is necessary to walk in love and light. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise but as wise. Wisdom, you may have heard, is skilled living. It is the ability to apply truth to life. And if you do that, you are wise, it will help you, verse 16, make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Verse 17, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Which is a restatement of what Paul said in verse 10, discern what is pleasing to God. Understand what the will of the Lord is. To do that will require wisdom. Wisdom is understanding truth which is from God. Wisdom is understanding God's truth and then living accordingly. So we can't even walk in love or walk as children of light without wisdom. And then Paul ends this section with some particular wisdom. He declares, I think, God's will in regards to coping. You all know what coping is. Coping is struggling through difficulty. Difficulty is inevitable in life, and we struggle, hopefully not avoid it, but struggle through difficulty. 
as we're struggling through difficulty, we are coping. Well, how do we cope as Christians? How do we struggle through difficulty? Well, in Paul's day, they used a lot of alcohol. A lot of people do the same thing today. So Paul says, beginning in verse 18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. And then here's wisdom. Here's what we should do instead. Be filled with the Spirit. Let's pause. Because what does that mean and how do I do that? Be filled with the Spirit. I thought the Spirit was already in me as a Christian. He is. The Bible makes clear that while the Spirit is in you, the abiding presence of Christ is in you. There are degrees in which the Holy Spirit is active in you as a Christian. I don't know how else to say it. You could be filled or more filled or less filled with the Spirit. And Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Well, what does that look like? How do I, how do, I do that? Where do, I, where do I get me some more Holy Spirit? You know, where do I pour it in? How does this work? Or what do you think of when you hear filled with the Spirit? Depending on your background, you could have lots of different things come to mind. Does it mean something uh, emotional to you? Does it mean uh, prophecy? Does it mean tongues? Does it, does it mean worship? What does it mean? Well, at least here, here's what Paul means. When he says, be filled with the Spirit, verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always, And for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul, okay, how do I walk in wisdom? How do I struggle through difficulty? How do we cope as Christians? We be filled with the Holy Spirit. How do we do that? We should go to church. We should go to church. And we should pray together. And see each other. We should sit under preaching together. We should Sing to each other. Colossians 3.16 says something very similar to the Colossians. Paul said, Okay, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We want the word of Christ. This is why you read the Bible. Every day, hopefully. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly so that you can then do this, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Doesn't that sound almost identical to what Paul says here to the Ephesians? What we need as Christians to walk in wisdom, what we need as we struggle through difficulty together, Paul says here is we need to go to church, we need to be together, and we need to sing to one another. I wonder if you've thought about singing in church that way. You know, there's a vertical aspect to your singing and there's a horizontal aspect to your singing. You know, many of the Puritan churches, they would, they would have the pulpit and then they would have the seats on three sides so that you faced each other during worship. And the reason they did that was because, well, we're called to sing to one another. This doesn't happen in your car. I hope you sing in your car. You should sing in your car. That's great. Or on your walk, you worship God throughout the week, and maybe you have melodies or songs that you love running through your head. But there's something that cannot be duplicated anywhere else. The only place it happens is when we gather together as the people of God on Sunday morning, is that as we sing to one another. And this is something you need as a Christian. You need to hear... You need to hear your brothers and sisters. You need to hear other Christians singing the truth about God to you so that you could walk in wisdom. So Christians, we must walk in love, must give ourselves up. We must walk in light to see and call things out for what they truly are. We must walk in wisdom, growing an understanding of truth, and living accordingly. In conclusion, if you're here and you're not a believer, I wonder how all of this sounds to you. There's this wonderful life that could be yours. What we read a few minutes ago about Christ giving himself up, Jesus offering himself, sacrificing himself. Well, Jesus Christ literally did that. About 2,000 years ago, he came and he lived a perfect life. And then he died. And then he was raised from the dead. And he did all of that in the place, in the stead of sinners like you. So that his life could count for your life. So that he could pay the price that your sin deserves. So that he could suffer the penalty on your behalf. So that you could be reconciled to God. And live with him and for him forever. And if you would even now believe that and put your trust and put your faith in Christ, 
then he will save you. And he will enable you to walk in love, to walk in light, and to walk in wisdom. For those of you who are family, who are already family, you're Christians, one simple question to conclude this. The same question that we sometimes ask a member candidate here. And that is, give a brief overview of your present walk with God. Answer that in your head. Describe your walk with God. Is there a walk? Are you out walking by yourself? Are you walking with God? Are you walking to God? Are you walking in love? Are you walking in light? Are you walking in wisdom? You love this God who has saved you. He is your heavenly father. Don't you want to imitate him and please him? Don't you not want to grieve him? So we're encouraged and motivated when we hear his word. And we learn how we might, by his grace, live in a way that brings a smile to his face. As we prepare for communion together, I wanted to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Beginning in verse 23, Paul writes, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we've heard the gospel together. We've thought about the gospel together. We've believed this gospel. And now we display this gospel in taking these symbols representing the body and the blood of Christ. And what did Paul say? We proclaim. What we do now speaks to each other. Like when we sing to one another, like when we actively listen together, when we read prayers or the word together, And now as we take communion together, we proclaim to each other the good news of Jesus Christ. If you're visiting with us, you're invited to take communion this morning. If you are a Christian, if you are a a baptized believer, you've turned from your sin and placed your faith in Christ. You've committed yourself to him and to his people. And so you're committed to this church or maybe another church 
that preaches the same gospel you heard today, then you're welcome to take communion. We'll have leaders up front to serve, and we ask that you would come forward and, and take the bread and juice back to your seat and then wait, and we take it together as a church family. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for opening our minds and opening our hearts and pouring your truth in. And your truth is everything we need. So we thank you. We pray now that you would be honored and glorified as we slow down and think specifically about the death of your son. We give you all praise, glory, and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.